Hi, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show dedicated to policy analysis in international affairs. The rise of the Islamic State has been a critical security and defense issue for the past few years. And the focus for policymakers has largely been to contain fighters and seize their territory in Syria and Iraq. Now, with no meaningful territory left for the Islamic State in either of those countries, greater attention is being placed on how to deal with returning foreign fighters. And when we say foreign fighters, we're referring to radicalized citizens from Western countries such as Canada, the United States, uh, and the United Kingdom, who go overseas to fight with a terrorist organization such as the Islamic State. On the policy front, some countries, uh, like the US, the UK, Australia, and France, have taken what some may consider to be extreme measures to actively hunt down their own foreign fighters to prevent them from coming home, employing what some have called death squads. It should be noted that Canada has thus far refused to do the same. Now, in this context, both this episode and the next will examine the topic of returning foreign fighters and the policies that are currently being employed by Western countries to deal with them. For this episode, I sat down with Phil Gursky, CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, who worked as a strategic analyst in the Canadian intelligence community for over 30 years and specializes in radicalization and homegrown Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and Islamist-inspired extremism. Phil Gursky, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, my pleasure. Um, Before we discuss some of the policy issues around this idea of uh, foreign fighters, Mm -hmm. I was hoping you could provide a little bit of clarity on the sense of of definitions. Sure. Um, The Canadian government has has used the term foreign fighters as well as the term extremist travelers. Mm -hmm. Is there a distinction to be made between those two terms or are they largely synonymous? It's actually much more complicated than that. Um, in addition to those two terms, the RCMP has used two terms in the past couple of years, and they have acronyms, as most things in the RCMP do. Uh, one is HRT and one is HRI, and that stands for high-risk travelers and high-risk individuals. So I think that at, at the end of the day, when you're looking at this as a phenomenon, what we're really talking about are Canadians who have elected to leave this country Uh, having been radicalized for the most part here in Canada and have decided it's a good idea to leave and join a terrorist group, such as Islamic State, such as Al-Shabaab, such as Al-Qaeda, with the intention of hooking up with the group uh, and becoming part of it and then doing whatever it is the group does. And uh, all these three that I just mentioned are all listed entities by Public Safety Canada as terrorist organizations. So I think what is really important for, for listeners to realize is that people who go there Uh, know exactly what they're getting into. This isn't some kind of surprise, like, oh my God, I didn't know Islamic State was a terrorist group. So the the terminology does vary, but it really is talking about this notion of Canadians who willingly, uh, deliberately make a decision to join a terrorist group. So then, given that there are multiple classifications there, one of the the issues on on this challenge of, of returning foreign fighters or extremist travelers or high-risk travelers or high-risk individuals um, is that determining an exact number uh, who have returned to Canada, it seems to be, it seems not to be a clearly defined number. Is that in part attributed to the fact that we have different classifications 
No, it's attributed to the fact that uh, as good as our security services are, both CSIS and the RCMP and their partners, is that we're simply not aware of how many Canadians have left. Uh, so in, in many cases, these were people that were on the radar and for one reason or another were able to leave, i.e. they got their passports and left the country. Uh, in, in many other cases, we don't know they've gone. Uh, and in fact, we only find out about them once they're there in theatre, in Iraq or Syria or Somalia, and they do something very, very stupid. They go online or on Facebook or, or Telegram or Instagram, and they post pictures of themselves saying, Hi, my name's Phil. Uh, you guys didn't catch me. I'm now with Islamic State or I'm with Boko Haram or whatever. And they brag about it. And so the, the numbers that CSIS will give you, and the numbers really haven't changed much over the past couple of years. The uh, former director of CSIS, Michelle Coulomb, used to like to use the number of 180. Um, the problem is we're not sure what that 180 means. We're not mm. sure if it's current, historical. We're not sure how many groups that, that includes. So it's not just 180 Canadians currently with Islamic State. It's more a more nebulous figure than that. So the number is clearly bigger than 180. Mm -hmm. But it prob it, it's hard to say how much bigger than 180 it is. Um, but I will say, and we may get to this later on, uh, our problem is not nearly as big as other countries have. Oh, that's actually an excellent segue. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because I wanted to ask... Um, when we consider this issue, you know, this idea of citizens from, quote unquote, Western countries, you know, traveling somewhere um, uh, to join a terrorist group. Um, is that a is that a threat that all countries face equally or are there there distinguishing features that are country specific mm -hmm. on a case to case basis? Yeah, it really does vary. So just to take Islamic State as one example, because clearly uh, foreigners have fought with a variety of terrorist groups over the past 20 to 30 years. But if we stick with the sort of current flavor of the day, if you will, of Islamic State, the estimates are that 40,000 foreign fighters have joined Islamic State at some point over the last couple of years. Those 40,000 uh, have come from a, uh, a, a huge, huge, huge range of countries. And, uh, you know, so probably a little more than 100 from Canada. We know the UK has close to 2,000. We know that France has close to 2,000. Uh, I was in Tunisia at a conference just this summer, and Tunisia acknowledges that they have between six and 8,000 Tunisians that have gone to fight with Islamic State, thousands from Central Asia, uh, thousands from Pakistan, uh, thousands from Russia, from, from uh, the Caucasus and Chechnya. So uh, uh, different countries have a, a significantly greater problem than we do here in Canada um, because, of course, no country wants to see its citizens uh, join terrorist groups and take part in acts of terrorism uh, against innocents abroad. And then, of course, the bigger issue is when are these guys going to come home and, and what do we do with them? But just to give you one more figure that might really cause me alarm when I heard it, uh, I was aware that the Tunisians had a big problem with Islamist extremism. So between six and 8,000 have gone to fight with Islamic State. I also learned that 21,000 were prevented from going, which means you have 21,000 mm. citizens who were bent on going to fight with a terrorist group and were told they couldn't. And, Pas they're, and they're still in the country. And they're still then. in the country, passports yeah. seized, uh, travel documentation seized. And what do you do with that number? Yeah. And that's a phenomenal figure. Um, so why is it then... You know, you threw out uh, the the estimation there of, of 100, perhaps, from Canada um, uh, versus thousands from other countries. In your estimation, is it, is it a question of physical distance or is it is it some other explanation 
why Canada has such a lower number compared to some of these other countries? I think a big part of it is how do you get there? So mm-hmm. clearly there's an ocean separating us from the you know, Eurasia mainland. You know, if you're a citizen of Turkey or if you're a citizen of Bulgaria or you're a citizen of France, it literally is a bus ride of a couple of days across the continent. You get off, well, you could, and things have changed obviously since 2014. But in early 2014, you could take a bus to the Turkish border cross the border because there's no one there, and hook up with your contact in Islamic State. Or even they had contacts within Turkey that would facilitate movement. That's not as easy, obviously, to come from North America. This is why we in the Americans have smaller figures. You could also argue, too, that in terms of people radicalized to violence, um, the numbers show that we have a smaller problem in North America than Western Europe does, than parts of Africa do, and parts of Central and and East Asia. So I think all those factors uh, come into play when it comes to the rather small numbers of Canadians who've gone to fight with Islamic State. Is there a a common profile, or are there... Um, some some attributes that can be identified in individuals who leave to to join terrorist organizations, or is it very much you just never know it can happen to to anyone? The unfortunate reality is it's the latter. You never know. So when I work at CSIS, and I and I wrote about this in my first book, the threat from within. There's no education profile. There's no employment profile. There's no family status profile. There's no ethnic profile. There's no age profile. There's no necessarily a history of criminal activity. There's no history of mental illness. It really is a very individualized, idiosyncratic process. And that also is the same case for foreign fighters. So just to take a couple examples from Canada, just to illustrate my point, you got someone like John McGuire, who's right here from Ottawa. He went to Ottawa U, not Carleton, thank God. Uh, you know, he was an accounting student, pretty bright, brought up in a middle-class home, converted to Islam in his teens. He's now dead. You look at someone like uh, Salman Ashrafi, who died in a suicide bombing in Iraq. He was fighting for a, a large Calgary oil firm at the time when he left. Then you have what you could call your so-called down-and-outs. Uh, you know, people like Ali Deary, a member of the Toronto 18, who uh, served his time in prison for that particular plot, got out, and a year later went over to Syria, joined up at al-Nusra, and was killed. So it, the, the, the range is tremendous. And the reason why that's important, there's two reasons why that's important. First of all, it's not predictive. So we can't say, well, let's just look at this segment of the population, focus on them to worry about it. The second thing, of course, is it makes the job of CSIS and RSMP that much harder. Because what you can't do is you can't sort of bias your investigations in one direction. What you can do are look for some signs, and there definitely are some signs, some common signs that people exhibit, uh, A, when they're radicalizing the violence, and B, when they're mobilizing that radicalization into actually doing something. With it. So you can't profile on who I am. You can profile to an extent. You've got to be really careful here on what I do and what I say. So what are some examples of some of those signs? People definitely are obsessed with conflict. They're obsessed with this, this sense of grievance in the Islamic world. Um, they're, they're obsessed with this notion of that uh, we're down and out and we're, we're being treated horribly. And it's all, it's all the, fart of West, the, the fault of Western foreign policy or it's all the fault of, of whatever. And then more concretely, people, uh, you, you see very distinct changes in their social environments. Uh, people will abandon friends and family, and they will glom on to people who think the same way that they do. In other words, they isolate themselves from any kind of messaging that's counter the Islamic State messaging. And of course, there's internet patterns in terms of what they download, what they read, what they share, what they comment on. And uh, generally, things like that are... And, but the, but and here's the caveat. Lots of people exhibit those behaviors, mm-hmm. but don't do anything about them. And we learned that at CSIS is that a lot of people that we were looking at were certainly very heavily radicalized to violence but never elected to act on it. And so I mean, you, you, you have to devote resources to this because these people pose a danger. They never actually, that danger is never manifest. 
is never actualized. And so even there, so you've, you've, you've dismissed the, the basically the demographic factors as, as predictive. Even the radicalization factors, which are largely predictive, are not 100% predictive because lots of people, and we should call them couch jihadis, they, they literally just, they were happy to sit on the couch and post things online and comment on things online and share things, but never got on a plane, never downloaded instructions to build a bomb, uh, never plotted to take out the Eaton Center. And um, they were a challenge from that perspective. Has any work been done to, um, and I, I suppose it poses a challenge given what you said that it's very difficult to, to identify those who, for whatever reason, that spark gets lit and they actually do something about some of these, these views that they have or beliefs perhaps mm. that they have. Um, has there been any kind of an attempt at a psychological profile to try and understand better the motivations? Well, obvious, there are obvious motivations, I suppose, but kind of the thought process for some of these individuals along the lines of, you know, if they're going to physically leave and join a terrorist group abroad, are they thinking long-term here or are they only thinking the immediate term, I'm going to join this group? Do they ever, do they ever think about what might happen if they try and return home? Like, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I know a lot of work has been done on trying to do exactly that. Like, who are these people, and can we actually figure out what their thought process is? And I've seen a variety of theories put forward, uh, none of which I find very satisfactory from a former practitioner's perspective, because I can find lots of exceptions to the rule. In terms of, I, I think what the, the, the most important word to, to use here is the word obsession. They're obsessed with what's happening in the Middle East. They're obsessed with what's happening now in, in Myanmar between the Buddhist government and the Rohingya uh, Muslims and the refugees in Bangladesh. They're obsessed with, you know, the Saudi invasion of Yemen. They're obsessed with what Nigerian army is doing to Boko Haram. They're obsessed with the Ethiopian and American presence in Somalia. So this obsession becomes almost all-consuming. And you get to a point, I remember one guy that we followed many years ago basically said, I, 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 can't, do, I can't take this anymore. Uh, my people are suffering. My people are dying. No one gives a damn. It's up to me to do something about it. And you sort of see yourself, not necessarily as a savior, but you see yourself as committed in part by your religion, we have to say that, in part by your own personal motivations to actually take action to help make what's wrong right. And when you get somebody that's that single-minded, that sort of that, that, that sort of razor-sharp focus on purpose, if you will, it's pretty hard to dissuade them not to do it. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Mr. Speaker, ISIS terrorists are criminals who fought against our country, but they are now being welcomed back to Canada by the Prime Minister with the promise of reintegration services to help them. Now, Canadians are shocked and alarmed that their government is not taking any steps to protect them. This is the number one job of any government. So will the Prime Minister stand today and tell us exactly how many ISIS fighters have returned to Canada and how many of those are currently in jail or under government surveillance? Right Honourable Prime Minister. Speaker, one of the top priorities of any government uh, is to ensure the safety and security of Canadians, and we ensure that every day. Our national security agencies are combating the phenomenon of Canadians participating in terrorist activities overseas. We use a number of tools to address the threat posed by these individuals, including the Passenger Protect program, cancelling, revoking or refusing passports, and laying criminal charges. 
Our national security agencies are carefully monitoring these individuals, and our law enforcement agencies do the difficult work of collecting evidence required for convictions in Canadian courts. That was an exchange between opposition leader Andrew Scheer and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in question period back in mid-November. Conservative criticism over current government policy on returning foreign fighters has been particularly intense, with the Liberals insisting that they are doing everything in their power to protect Canadians while remaining within the rule of law. Given the partisan divide on this topic, Phil and I discussed the current state of Canadian policy to address the return of foreign fighters. Shifting gears a little bit, um, now that we've, you know, fleshed out a little bit this idea of who, who these individuals may be, I want to talk about policy, mm-hmm. specifically policy with the issue of when these individuals return to their country, whether it's Canada or the U.S. or the U.K., um, specifically looking at Canadian policy, how, in, in your words, how would you describe the current Canadian policy for dealing with returning foreign fighters or, or how, however, whatever term you, you might want to use? Um, being uncharitable in this Christmas season, abysmal. Uh, I think a lot of people have said, well, is it really that much of a problem? They went and they, you know, went to fight with Islamic State. We're not quite sure what they did. Uh, maybe they didn't take part in atrocities. Maybe they really are disillusioned with what they saw. And it, there's this narrative out there that they got there and it was, oh, my God, if somebody had told me six months ago, this is what I would be doing, I never would have gone on that plane. And I find that disingenuous. I really do, because if you join Islamic State in 2014 or 2015 or even in 2016, there's no way that in an age of social media and an age of the ubiquity of news, you did not know what Islamic State stood for. You would have had to have been from a, a different planet to not have known that. So I, I dismiss these notions that, well, I thought I was joining a, you know, the gardening club or something. I mean, I'm being facetious here, but so... But there are those that say, well, people come back and they're not, they're not happy with what they did. Well, and, and that's fine. I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm much more grateful if you are much more, maybe grateful is not the right word. I, I, I feel better if you come back disgruntled, disillusioned, than you come back a raving, radicalized, violent person. Because that's the person I really worry about. The problem is the mere fact that you went is an offense under the criminal code, under sections 83 and following of the criminal code, to leave Canada to join a listed terrorist entity is by definition a criminal offense, and it should be it sh- people should be charged, r- irrespective of what they did in theater. And that's, in fact, one of the challenges. Uh, what did they do? Unless, as I mentioned before, they're stupid enough, and some of them are, uh, to post pictures with with severed heads uh, or show them with a gun that's pointing at someone's head, we don't always know what happened in theater. We, we don't have the intelligence. We don't have the evidence. I mean, evidence is one thing. I mean, we, we can get intelligence perhaps, but I mean, evidence in, in, in Syria or Iraq? How are you going to ga- gather information with their evidentiary standards? And we're sure as hell not going to talk to the Syrians. We've mm-hmm. learned that lesson over the past couple of years. But having said all that, these people still are, in fact, criminals under, under the Canadian Criminal Code. And we have this notion that somehow if we just talk to them and, you know, rehabilitate them and, and, and reintegrate them into Canadian society, it's all going to be better. And bottom line is the vast majority will probably not return to Canada to, to carry out acts of terrorism. However, we have seen internationally, we've seen in France, we've seen in Belgium, we've seen in the United Kingdom, we've seen in Spain, people returning foreign fighters carrying out terrorist attacks. We would be blatantly and stupidly naive to think in Canada that none of those 100 or whatever number we're talking about, some come home to carry out terrorism. It's almost inevitable. And, and there's a very uh, famous scholar called Thomas Heghammer. He's a Norwegian 
who has looked at this problem historically, way back to the Al-Qaeda days in the 1980s. And he showed that about one in nine come home to do a terrorist attack. So if those numbers obtain today, we're looking at approximately 10 to 12 Canadians who may come, if they survive, and a lot are dead. We know a lot of them are dead or think they're dead. DNA isn't always available to prove that. Um, upwards of 10 to 12 people could be coming back with the intent to carry out a terrorist attack. And the challenge is, which one is which? Which one is the, is the eight and nine who are disillusioned, traumatically, psychologically scarred, and which is the one and nine that's going to carry an attack? And there's no predictive modeling to help you with that. So then currently, uh, if I'm understanding what you're saying, uh, currently beyond perhaps the, the idea of programming along the lines of countering violent extremism or CVE programming, um, is there not a lot of action on actually prosecuting individuals who return? I am not aware of a single case. Okay. And, and is that, that's not because of a lack of evidence, or is that, is that really the critical issue? Well, we know one guy in Hamilton is being rehabilitated, despite having made a bin with Islamic State. Sorry, I, I, I stand corrected. There's one case in, uh, in uh, Waterloo, Oshawa, of a young man called Kevin Muhammad, who pleaded guilty just this last fall to having fought with Islamic State. I'm not sure what sentence he got. But um, the, the point is we're not quite sure how many have returned, because not surprisingly, when they get to the customs, the CBSA post, they don't say, hey, I'm back from Islamic State. So, and if you don't, didn't know they were there in the first place, you're not going to know right. when they came back. Right. So I think we're going to be faced with this problem for the next probably two to five years as we see this slow exodus from Islamic State, uh, people coming back to Canada, and we're going to have to deal with them. And, and a lot of other countries, the Belgians have stated categorically, we will not negotiate with the returning foreign fighters. They have committed offense. We will charge them. Mm-hmm. The French will charge them. The Americans will charge them. The Brits will charge them. Um, we're the only ones that seem to think that, well, it's okay. And, and, and I'm, not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to be dismissive here, but it, this is a really dangerous way to think that somebody who spent X amount of time with Islamic State in a theater of war, uh, a truly heinous terrorist group that's involved in mass rapes, throwing gays off buildings, beheading people, immolating people, drowning people, that people won't come back, uh, you know, affected in such a way that they, they could pose a danger to Canadian society. There's no guarantee of it. But to me, the mere fact that they went and they were not brainwashed and they were not led by the nose and they were not, you know, somehow fooled into this. These were conscious decisions on their point, on their part. And to me, when, when that happens, in the same way, if I decide to rob a bank t- tomorrow and, well, he wasn't feeling, you weren't feeling well that day or, you know, your wife split up with you or the kids were giving you a hard time. It's OK. That's not OK. That's a criminal offense and, it should be, and, the, and the charges should be laid. I want to return to uh, some of the the policies that are being undertaken by other countries in a moment. But just coming back to Canada, um, we currently have a liberal government, uh, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, And I'm wondering, has the policy changed since the days of the Harper Conservative government on this issue? Has that evolved? There's been a distinct change in just in counterterrorism and, as you said, CVE, counting violent extremism in general since the Harper years. So I was at public safety before I retired from the Federal Civil Service uh, just at the end of my career. And the Harper government really didn't care about CVE. It was too soft. It was like the, they preferred the hard judicial, let's nail these bastards kind of approach. The Liberal government has obviously been quite different than the Harper government. They have uh, dedicated themselves to creating this new Centre of Excellence at Public Safety Canada, which I'm told is slowly coming up to speed two and a half years later, two years later. Um, so I think there's a different tone with the Liberals. 
But I sincerely do hope that they, they retain that hard option because in some cases you simply have to do it. So I, I'm all in favor of CVE. Absolutely. For somebody who is just dipping a toe into the water or where an early intervention might actually get these people back on the straight and narrow and off this disastrous path, which will end up in either death or destruction, by all means, these people aren't CVE candidates. At best, they're de-radicalization candidates. And de-radicalization is a whole can of worms that nobody in Canada is doing to the best of my knowledge. And I have really sincere skepticism about whether de-radicalization actually works anywhere in the world. Is this tonal shift then in comparison in comparing perhaps the policies of the, the previous government to the current government? Is is the shift in your view purely a partisan play, or are there other environmental or contextual factors that explain why things are being done differently now than they were perhaps two, three, four years ago? That's a really good question. I I, I think part of it would be the ethos of the of the Conservative Party versus the Liberal Party just historically in this country. Uh, you know, we always said that there's there's no real right and left wing candidate. It's just it's gradations of center, mm-hmm. right? But we would say that, you know, the NDP is, is, is two ticks left of center, the Liberals are one tick left of center, the Conservatives are either bang on center or one tick right of center. So we're talking about a very small political space here, I think, in terms of, in terms of ideology. But I do think the Liberals wanted to do things a little differently. Um, there certainly were mistakes ba- made by the Harper government in the CVE program. Uh, some things were said uh, about certain people that were very, very unhelpful in trying to get the collaboration of communities. And uh, communities are really important. They're not just important for CSIS and the RCMP, they're important for the government. Because, you know, as, as many people have said, and this goes back to CVE, you can't arrest your way out of this problem. Mm-hmm. Arrests are necessary, prosecutions are necessary, and I would fully support that. But if you keep, if you, if you see arrest as your only option, it never ends. Well, it's more of a band-aid. It's a reactive solution right, as opposed to a proactive one. It's the one. same with drug use, right? If yeah. you think prosecution is your only solution... You just keep prosecuting and you keep getting more and more drug users. There has to be something at that front end to say, well, you know, don't do drugs, kids, that kind of thing. And so I, I think that the Liberal government recognized that and wanted to put a little more money into this this so-called center of excellence, which is, I understand is about $35 million over five years. It's getting, as I said, it's it's getting struck slowly, um, too slowly for my liking, to be perfectly honest. But it's, it, it's, it's, it's the right direction, as long as the government recognizes that you still need that, that you know, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? Everything from early, early intervention when somebody's just showing the early signs of adopting this ideology all the way to people who need to be arrested, tried, and prosecuted. So really, because it is such a such a complicated issue, perhaps a full suite of policies, both maybe on the softer side or the early early prevention side and kind of more of the, the harder side, um, dealing with, with individuals who have already perhaps stepped over that line. And there's really no coming back Absolutely. to a certain point. You know, I, I argued in my first book that every process, every individual process of radicalization is truly individual. It's idiosyncratic. You can't you can't make this into one. You can't draw patterns. So if, if your process of radicalization of violence is individual to you, so is the response. Mm-hmm. So is the, well, what do you do now? Some people might be might be really open to rehabilitation. They might be really open to, to disavowing themselves of the ideology. Others will not. And they will remain threats for the indefinite future. And, and so the challenge to the government and the challenge to CSIS and the RCMP and their partners is, well, which one is which? Mm-hmm. And which approach do we, do we adopt, do we apply to which individual? When we, I want now want to return to kind of the policies of some other countries. Um, other countries, the U.S., the United Kingdom, uh, Australia, and I believe France, although I may not be, 
correct on that, have taken steps to, um, I'm trying to think of it, for lack of a better word, actively hunt down some of their own citizens abroad to prevent them from returning. Mm-hmm. And I know the term that is used sometimes for this is this idea of death squads. Yeah. Canada has come out and said that that's not something that, that they're doing or that they have any intention to do. What are your views on that? I'm of two minds. Uh, first and foremost, if a Canadian is fighting with Islamic State or Al-Shabaab or Boko Haram or Al-Qaeda or Lashkar Toiba or pick a group and dies in a theater of conflict from an airstrike or a drone strike or a military operation, I'm not going to shed a tear. As I said earlier, these are conscious decisions. These people deliberately join these terrorist groups, and that's the fate of most terrorists is they die. So I feel for the families, and I certainly have interviewed mothers whose sons have died fighting for terrorist groups. It was the hardest thing I ever did at CSIS was to interview the mothers. But those people, you know what? You made your bed, you lie in it. What I'm not a fan of are hit lists, or they call them kill lists as well, and for several reasons. First of all, it's illegal. Um, there's been good arguments made under the Charter of Right to Life that you have, you know, you, you are due, you know, if, if we think you're a terrorist and we have good evidence in that regard, we have an obligation to bring you to court, mm-hmm. to, pre- to present, present our evidence to the judge and, and or jury, to make our case, and then to have the law apply. That is what we need to do. Yes, that's a challenge. It is certainly a challenge in trying to get these guys coming back from Syria, Iraq, or Afghanistan. So if they happen to die in theater, no problem, one less terrorist to worry about. But we can't actively go out and seek, well, I, you know, I want Phil Gursky on that list and I'm going to hunt him down until he's dead because it's a simply counter to Canadian values as far as I'm concerned. And there's no due process. Right, exactly. And there's no due process. And, you know, you, and, and, and the, the third reason is it's largely ineffective in the sense that it doesn't stop terrorism. So let me give you a very concrete example. So there's a, there was an American Yemeni called Amr al-Awlaki. He was very, very famous in the 2000s. Uh, thousands and thousands of videos and audio tapes. And he was sort of the radicalizer of the late 2000s, early, and, and, and he was killed by a U.S. drone in 2011 in Yemen, in his native Yemen. Olaki's sermons are still ubiquitous on the Internet. He's still radicalizing people. He's been dead for six years now, going on seven years. So it, has, it, it didn't, I mean, yeah, you eliminated one terrorist, one ter- dead terrorist is a good terrorist, but his message is still resonating. So what in, in, in effect have you achieved? And, and even, you know, there are some civil rights people in the States that said, well, what you did was illegal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, he didn't have his day in court. You thought he was a terrorist, and he sure, sure as hell was, but still in, in, in a Western liberal democratic system, we take those accusations and we prove them in a court of law. We don't prove them at the end of a drone or the end of a, end of a, a ballistic missile. Um, so... Dead terrorists are okay, provided that, you know, this is what happens in a theater of war. And, I, and, I, and I'm not going to change that, and you're not going to change that. But but going out deliberately and saying, I want to kill this guy, I'm not okay with that. Does that also risk um, changing the narrative for the worse in terms of perhaps leading to further radicalization and positioning the state, whether it be the U.S., the U.K., or Australia, or whatever, as the enemy? Mm-hmm. Look, they're turning on their own people. Yeah. You know, I've thought a lot about the narrative over the past 15, 20 years, and um, I've come to the conclusion, it doesn't matter what we do or do not do, the narrative is there. Uh, we've done enough historically to justify the narrative. We will do more today in the future to justify the narrative. We're done if we do, and we're done if we don't. Um, they will use this against us just as much as they will use any anything else to, against this kind of thing. So it, it doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. It's it's not. I don't see it as a significant factor in that, oh, don't do this because the narrative will strengthen. The right. narrative is already very, very strong. Uh, before we wrap, um, 
I just wanted to to put one final question to you, and that is, given your your experience and the the depth of analysis that you've done on this topic, where do you see this issue going in the next 12 to 24 months, both in Canada and perhaps mm. more broadly? I know you, you alluded to it earlier. Mm. You said, you know, as given that the Islamic State, for example, doesn't really have any meaningful territory mm. currently, um, you may see greater outflows, but can you elaborate a little bit on that? Sure. So, uh, so a few things are going to we're going to see a few things. We're going to see this trickle back to the country, and we're going to have to deal with it. We're going to deal with it judicially. We'll have to deal with it with you know maybe CVE, although I'm skeptical. Maybe rehabilitation. Okay, there's there's that. Secondly, is that um, and and this is the topic of the th- my third book, which was published in September, called The Lesser Jihads. There are all kinds of other conflicts out there to which these people could, in fact, will find themselves. So, simple example, uh, what's happening in Myanmar right now, and I've alluded to this already, the slaughter of, of Rohingya Muslims by, the, by Buddhist extremists in Myanmar and the massive refugee flows into Bangladesh. Jihadi groups were already keying on this. Look what's happening to our fellow Muslims. Muslim women are being raped, babies are being burned alive, men are being killed by these Buddhist bastard extremists. What are you going to do about it? So, you know, if you wanted a cause... If you wanted something to fight for, now that Islamic State has, lost, as you said, lost its territory, basically it's a disintegrated terrorist group, although the ideology is quite, still quite strong, you may find your way to Myanmar. Or you might find your way to Somalia, because Ethiopia is going back into Somalia. Or you might find your way to Nigeria because of Boko Haram. Or you might find your way to Yemen because of what the Saudis are doing. Or you might find your way to the West Bank because of what American policy with respect to Jerusalem is the capital. So the, 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 the downside... And, and, and the upside for the terrorists is that there are at least two dozen conflicts worldwide that feed this narrative of the West and the West writ large as a very, you know, the West includes China and Russia and all kinds of states hate us. They want to eliminate us. They want to kill us. And that only this, this, this virtuous few, the Mujahideen, are the ones who are qualified and are motivated to protect us from our enemies. So we will see Canadians go to other conflicts. And then that's a whole other issue of returning foreign fighters. So we, we have those returning from Iraq and Syria. Then we're going to see ones returning from Somalia and those returning from Kashmir and those returning from southern Thailand and those returning from the list goes on and on and on. Perhaps underscores the idea that for an issue like this, it is similar in some respects to the idea of the mythical Hydra, the fact that it can never really fully be stomped out or at least... In the current situation, it doesn't appear that that that's going to happen anytime soon. Well, and, and the one thing, we're, the, the 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 one phrase which really burns me, and I, I I've been railing against this for a decade now, is we call this a war on terror, mm-hmm. and you know it's not a war. It, it you know counterterrorism is largely the purview of your security intelligence and law enforcement agencies. When you make it into a war, you embellish it. Uh, you give a much weaker opponent uh, much greater importance. Uh, a sense that they really are making a difference, and um, as some as someone much better than me pointed out, when you when you wage a war against a common noun, the wars never end. Mm. War on drugs, war on poverty, war on whatever. Pick a common noun and, and put war in front of it. How many of those wars have, are over? None of them. So you you can't defeat terrorism. You can defeat a terrorist group. That's exactly what Islamic State sees itself in because of you know the Americans, the Russians, the Syrians, and the Iranians. So Islamic State is no more, to the best of our knowledge. The ideology is there, but the group is gone. Um, so even though the, so you've, you've defeated a terrorist group, but you haven't defeated terrorism, and you haven't defeated even Islamic State's ideology of mm-hmm. terrorism, because in, in fact we have Islamic State affiliates in, in at least a half dozen countries, in the Sinai, in, in Yemen, in North Africa, in the, in the Indian subcontinent, and, and, and the list goes on and on. 
Well, we will leave it there. Phil Gursky, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. This episode was made possible thanks to the support of the Carleton University Graduate Students Association. The GSA represents the collective interests and promotes the general welfare of the graduate students of Carleton University, and they offer a suite of resources and services to help graduate students make the most out of their school experience. To learn more, you can visit their website at gsacarleton.ca. I'd also like to acknowledge the hard work of our production team, Rukia Mohammed, Hamza Haddad, Samran Roy, Kenneth Boddy, and Joe Venkatesh. With a special thanks to Nabil Batia for consulting on this episode. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will continue to examine the policy questions pertaining to the return of foreign fighters. Until then, I'm Mitch, and this is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.